The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And I want to welcome everyone again. It's nice to be here for this four-week Buddhist studies course on compassion and wisdom. And uh, the basic premise of the Buddhist studies classes is that uh, we're combining our commitment to do some practice, sit down, be with our experience in you know, a somewhat formal way in the sense of putting aside some time, if not every day, most days, and combining that formal practice, meditation time, with some study. And so um, one of the reasons I'm asking everybody to register is so you'll receive the emails from me that have some reading materials. And I'll have a lot there, and you can read all of them, or you can read some of them, or you might find your own material, study materials to read to support your actual contemplation of your experience, and your experience of compassion and wisdom in particular. And then every other week, so week two and week four, we'll have small groups for the last half an hour. Because we're online, these groups will be optional. So at next week at 8.35, there'll be a link. Um, Michelle Hobbs, who's helping us out with the technology, will put a link up uh, near the end of the class. And those of you who are uh, interested in being in small breakout groups of three people or four people, then you can go to click on that Zoom link and we'll say more about that next week. I wanted to, before getting started, um, in terms of the talk, introducing, especially tonight, the practice of compassion. But um, just to be really honest with ourselves, as especially if you're experiencing in your life a lot of difficulty, it's not that easy to generate and abide with compassion if we're really hurting. You know, just notice from our own experience when we've been hurting, for whatever reason, emotional pain, physical difficulty, strain, worries, whatever it might be, if we're having a hard time in life and then we bump into somebody else's suffering, well, we tend to be irritated by that person's suffering because we're already feeling somewhat or a lot overwhelmed with our own suffering. So, no, this will be dependent on each of our circumstances, but especially in the meditation times during the next four weeks, take some time at the beginning of the set to feel good. <laughs> and, you know, the classic way in our medit Buddhist meditation practice is to just recognize that good feeling of being present. And I mentioned in the guided meditation tonight, it's a subtle pleasure being present. There's something, there's a goodness and a rightness, a pleasurable rightness when the mind is present with the experience of embodiment, just the ordinary experience of being here in this body, breathing, aware of sensation, aware of sound, 
aware of the way it is, Buddha knowing Dhamma. Now, there might still be, obviously, some distraction, some wavering in that present moment awareness, but to whatever degree Buddha knowing Dhamma is there, then notice how right, how good, how pleasurable it is to be present. Because that, in a sense, gives the heart, the mind, some immunity, some resilience from being drawn into reactive, negative, unhelpful states. And it's going to be more possible to arouse an authentic experience of compassion. Because when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I'm feeling put upon and, and I'm reactive, it's not so easy to arouse an authentic, beautiful quality of love or compassion in the, in the heart. Try as we might. We might go through the motions or we might be sort of forcing it. But, but the practices that we're doing, you know, and this is true not just with the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity, these beautiful qualities of love, but any kind of meditation in the Buddhist system, at least, it's really not something that can be forced. Right? Because so much of the meditative experience is learning in different ways, or many ways, right? But learning how to, in a sense, drop in or even relax into these natural places of abiding, these places where the heart-mind has a natural capacity to rest and to express these beautiful, a beautiful capacity, like to be generous, to be loving, to be tender-hearted, to be appreciative, to be balanced, to be quiet. And there's this whole universe of internal, blissful, healing, enlivened, bright states of mind for us to access over time, arising because of our interest and our persistence, and good instructions from the Buddha and, and uh, wise teachers and good friends who are doing their own practice and can share the roadmaps that they've come across or figured out from their own practice with us. And it's, you know, it's always this seeming chicken and egg phenomena where it's like, can't do practice unless I'm feeling good and I don't feel good unless I do good practice. And it can feel a bit like a setup and often we just want to give up, you know, especially if we're having one of those sits where the body and mind feels dull and dead to the world, or the body and mind feels this sort of wiry, restless, anxious feeling, and any number of other qualities of the body and mind that apparently, you know, it seems to make the cultivation of these wholesome qualities or the capacity to drop into these beautiful places of abiding impossible. But the thing is, even when practice seems impossible, it doesn't mean that the work 
of doing the practice isn't beneficial. It just means it's messy or unpleasant. But it doesn't mean that we're not planting useful seeds that will benefit us, benefit the heart and mind in the long run. There's something about putting in the time, not waiting for conditions to be right to put in the time, but just willing to put in the time. That's what we do. So that's part of the Buddhist studies. You know, some of you have been involved in these classes for more than a decade, you know, as we cycle through these different teachings of the Buddha. And, you know, m me teaching the class is very much like wanting to stay close to the teachings, wanting to continue to reflect on them so that they show up better in my daily life and show up naturally in meditative times when, you know, my situation is quieter and the mind can have more clarity and, and more sort of seclusion from the irritants and the triggers out there in, in our wider world. So this uh, intersection of wisdom and compassion is uh, you know, just an ancient way of helping us understand this path of awakening that the Buddha taught and so many folks for so many generations have been cultivating this marriage of intimacy and non-grasping. So in a way, non-grasping the heart, the reality of non-grasping the heart that isn't clinging, right? that is an expression of wisdom. The heart that knows better than to get tight, to fixate, to be in conflict with the natural unfolding of the present moment. And intimacy is really, I think, a good word for all the qualities of love, right? the heart that's willing to be close. In a way, wisdom tends to be seen as that which can deconstruct and see the underlying elements. It's changing, it's ephemeral, any clinging is suffering. It's not really personal. It's just stuff coming and going, whether it's thought and emotion, external, internal. It has these qualities we call the three characteristics of change, unsatisfactoriness and impersonal nature. And intimacy is really that reminder to that the heart is capable of saying, yes, I'm, I'm willing to connect and I'm willing to feel the feeling that's there when I connect. I'm not afraid to inhabit this life. So if it's a really beautiful moment and someone's experiencing a lot of success, I can get really close to that with appreciation. I appreciate that person's happiness and well-being. May it continue. If it's a really difficult moment, I can be close because of this capacity of compassion. I'm not afraid of your suffering. If there's something I can do, I'm going to do it. If there's nothing I can do right now, I'm going to be close. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid that you're suffering, even if there's nothing I can do to alleviate it. I can at least be here with you. And in a sense, modeling not being afraid. And if 
the situation is really ambiguous, I can still show up and be intimate with balance, this balance of equanimity that doesn't even need clarity or doesn't even need to be able to comprehend what's going on. But I, I know that I'm confused. I know that the situation is not clear and ambiguous. And I'm not afraid of that either. I'm not neurotically needing to define the moment even though I don't know what's happening. There's a very beautiful expression of this marriage of compassion and wisdom, intimacy and non-grasping, intimacy and freedom that I like. Um, I forget some teacher was using this or I read it in an article, but it's a very famous Zen poet, Isa, and it's just a passage, very short passage. And I believe the, the situation is he wrote this poem or these words uh, not too long after losing a child. And it goes like this, the world of dew is a world of dew. And yet, and yet. So the first two lines really is the wisdom view, right? The world of do, it's kind of a common archetype of the ephemeral nature. You know, do is there in the morning and as soon as the sun comes out, it evaporates, it's gone. The world of do is a world of do. So even something as ephemeral as do is just itself ephemeral, right? It's just like insubstantial nature of our lives. Emotions come and go, situations come and go. And yet, and yet, is that is that willingness not to identify with, like in Buddhism sometimes we use the term emptiness, that things are empty, so then I don't have to care. So this marriage of intimacy and non-grasping, and, and really the point I wanted to emphasize in this first class, in the four-week course, is the, the necessity of both. We need that wisdom. We need that pointing out, that instruction, that things are ephemeral, that they come and go, that they're impersonal. And that any kind of identification is suffering. We need that pointing out instruction, but we also need that exposure. We need to be close to experience. If we don't have that exposure to life, to the joys and sorrows of life, then the wisdom is going to be intellectual. It's the, you know, it's in relationship, it's having a body, an aging body. It's dealing with difficult experience, issues of power, issues you know that arise in our society, in our communities, around difference, whether the difference is around class or gender or race or privilege, wealth, body size, whatever it might be. It's like breathing in the reality 
of our family lives, of our community lives, of the wider world, breathing in the, the differences that exist and seeing that it's what it is, it's stuff that comes and goes. But the wisdom teachings only are useful and make sense when there's the exposure, when a human being is actually showing up and inhabiting their life as it actually is. There's a line from one of the teachers, famous teachers, Nargajuna, uh, several centuries after the time of the Buddha, and it gets translated like this, those who believe in emptiness are incurable. Right? So when a human being, when we take our stance on, the, on this idea that things are empty, that they are ephemeral, and so those people over there that are suffering, or even my own pain and suffering, it's not what it is. And there's some truth, at least on that intellectual level, to say suffering isn't what it appears to be. But that doesn't mean it isn't something. It just means that really getting, we don't really know suffering without the wisdom. The wisdom helps us get close to the suffering. And the compassion is that inclination that suffering is to be met. Right, because compassion is that quality of love that knows or trusts inclusion, saying yes, doesn't trust moving away, turning away. Does it make sense? And it's interesting in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's description of this path of awakening, the second factor in the path, wise intention, often it's translated as wise aspiration even, it mentions these three qualities of renunciation and generosity, kindness and harmlessness or compassion. These are the qualities that as, as wisdom develops, as understanding develops, the motive quality of the heart is generosity, kindness, and compassion. It's not a stance, it's what's left. Like, as long as there's life energy, this life is animated, but now there's deep wisdom, then the expressive part of this life will be these intentions of letting go and being generous and kindness and compassion this not wanting to harm, not wanting to contribute to harm. This is poetically described um, in a passage of um, someone translated uh, Rumi, a line from one of Rumi's poems, this wonderful Persian um, poet, not a drop in the ocean, rather ocean in a drop. And John Wellwood, um, 
a well-known psychologist and spiritual teacher, he wrote, we are, we are not just humans learning to become Buddhas, but also Buddhas waking up in human form, learning to become fully human. So wisdom is learning how to show up with compassion moment by moment. And compassion is learning to be wise as it gets closer and closer, less defended. You know how it is, we can, when we don't have a lot of wisdom and there's some suffering around us, we might show up, but we'll show up with some strong idea, like pity. Oh my God, I'm so sorry you're feeling the way you are. But in that stance, it's like a sense of separation, like you're screwed, I know you're screwed, I wish it weren't that way, but we're separating ourselves from the suffering. So what wisdom can do, it really allows compassion to be more and more fearless. So that's what wisdom brings to compassion. And what compassion brings to the wisdom is a kind of grounding. So it's a non-superficial, non-philosophical. The wisdom gets grounded in reality. They need each other to really blossom. And that's an image, you know, as you, these weeks, as we practice compassion, we, you know, these ordinary difficult things like being irritated by one of the people you live with, you know, because they're suffering is bothering you. You know, you see something that they're acting out, they're suffering in whatever way they do that, closing down or obsessing about something or overeating or checking out in this way, whatever it might be, and then we get upset by their suffering and either we want to fix them or we want to separate and get away from them. But then you might bring that image to mind where Buddha's waking up in human form, learning to become fully human. So it's like, okay, what is what do enlightened enlightened wisdom, this wisdom of non-fear and non-attachment, what does it look like when it's like this, when I'm seeing this? Like all those little places in life where we flinch, I noticed earlier today, I was out walking and there was a little bird, probably born just a few days earlier. I don't know what got it, whether it was a cat or whether it just fell out of the nest, but there it was just lying there, you know, looking very, as little birds do, very fragile. And, you know, there's that just that subtle, sometimes not so subtle, wanting to flinch or turn away or, you know, like, being disgusted by the fragility of life. So that's this like, oh, I'm a Buddha trying to fully, completely inhabit human existence. I'm this, I've got this capacity to not flinch, to not be afraid, to be responsive. And I have to learn though how to really um, let that blossom, that capacity, fully realize, blossom. Here's a moment where I can practice. Right? So instead of 
you know, keep walking, just stand for a moment. Same thing with the difficulties at home, or the difficulties when we listen to the news or engage with our different communities. <coughs> what would it mean to take this time, or even when we see our own de tendencies, mental tendencies, emotional tendencies that disgust us, activities, habits that disgust us or upset us, and then like, well, what would it, what would it look like for a Buddha, for me as a Buddha, to be relating or meeting this life when it's like this? Because that's what the Buddha can do. It's one of the descriptions in the tradition around loving kindness and all the qualities of the heart is that one of the essential characteristics of love is it knows how to show up to whatever the situation that presents itself. There is no, you know, situation a human can encounter that real love, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, basic goodness, basic friendliness, wouldn't know how to nimbly, creatively, fully show up for that moment. And it's not because love has a plan or compassion has a plan, how am I going to be a loving person <clears throat> in this situation for this person or for myself. It's precisely not having a plan and not fixing on a plan that allows the heart to be so nimble and creative and to find a way to express this wisdom and compassion. And this is really what we're here for these four weeks to learn how to do, is first to recognize, however feeble, right, they're not obviously, the qualities of wisdom and compassion are not, I'm presuming, fully developed in any of our hearts, right? But there's some capacity of wisdom and love, wisdom and compassion manifesting in our lives. And our job is to recognize. We have to really resolve tonight, tomorrow morning, maybe tonight before you go to bed, tomorrow morning. We need to keep making a clear resolve, a resonating resolve to notice wisdom and to notice authentic expressions of love and compassion. Because if we don't have, if we don't cultivate that resolve and interest, we're going to remain oblivious like we have been. And it isn't because there isn't love and wisdom showing up, is we haven't clarified our interest and seen it clearly and more and more clearly. So we can see how love feeds and depends on wisdom and how wisdom feeds and depends on love. They really support each other. And, and with this homework that I'm suggesting, so like next week, and especially for those who are going to 
uh, join the breakout groups at the end of week two for the last half an hour. And in those breakout groups, but you could do this with any Dharma friend this week and the next couple of weeks, you know, you want to be able to describe moments where you saw the wisdom of non-grasping, the wisdom of non-attachment, just showing up at some moment of your life where the mind, the heart could have been entangled, attached, reactive, but it was like that tendency to get tight and reactive and attached and identified, that impulse was there, but you notice some kind of space around that impulse to get tight and attached. And recognizing the space, then the impulse was just something being known. So it didn't get, you know, didn't sort of draw the mind in to that unskillful way of relating in that moment. There was some space. We call that the space of being free. The mind, the heart was free precisely because it saw the unwholesome reaction as just something being known. So when we have moments of freedom arising because of wisdom, it doesn't mean we don't have, the personality doesn't have unwholesome tendencies. It's because that space of wisdom sees the tendency as just the tendency and not self. So there's some freedom there. So when you describe in your small groups or with your friend or just to yourself, you want actual experiences of seeing wisdom in real life right there in the moment. And the same with compassion. And especially at the beginning part of the class, emphasizing, resolving to notice moments of actual compassion, however simple and ordinary it might be. The key is to bring a clear, appreciative attention to a moment of compassion where you see, oh, this is the heart that has the tendency to move toward suffering, my own suffering or the suffering of another. So it doesn't really matter whether you're, that impulse, that compassionate impulse is to move and connect, to be close with your own experience of pain and suffering or with somebody else's. Or even abstractly like the suffering out there in the world generally. But there's that movement to connect and to hold and to respond if there's some way, appropriate way to respond. But not dependent on responding. Because sometimes there isn't anything clear that needs to be done. And so the mind can continue to connect and to be in a sense touched by, you know, tenderized by the suffering that the heart's connecting with. And it isn't dependent on having a plan or a way to fix things because it knows how to be close. So we want to notice those simple moments. Like I mentioned, you know, just that seeing the little bird dead, noticing the tendency to be um, sort of disgusted, turning away. But then, because I saw that tendency, I could actually be touched. And I still, I feel the imprint from that moment, just seeing the fragility 
of that little creature lying there, right? It touches and it reminds the heart of some deep, deep truth. This is that marriage of wisdom and compassion. It's a very powerful combination that strips away so much superficiality when wisdom and compassion come together. Compassion being that impulse, that capacity to connect with what is difficult to connect with, suffering. And wisdom is that confidence that the heart doesn't need to cling, the mind doesn't need to be dependent, that freedom can coexist with exposure. Not freedom because the heart's not exposed, but freedom with exposure. Isn't that the kind of freedom we want, right? Because freedom arising because of non-exposure, well then we just want to get away from everything. It's like we're a human being with a body, a sexual being, totally enmeshed in power issues, you know, with every other living creature, even those we eat and share space with, even non-human creatures, right? It's all about power. Who's got power this and power that and who's sharing and who's not sharing. And In other words, it's really messy. And it's precisely the freedom I'm interested in is the freedom that can manifest in this kind of complexity that we actually find ourselves in real life embodied on a planet with a lot of other creatures, all trying to survive, trying to get by. What does freedom look like here? And what is that freedom, uh, what is that freedom's relationship with love, with this capacity the heart has to include, to get close? That's what I'm interested in. There's a beautiful line from a poem by Mark Nepo. My efforts now turn from trying to outrun suffering to accepting love wherever I can find it. And so it's really, compassion is this, I really think of it as a kind of an expression of wisdom or, you know, just two sides of the same thing of, of a way, an, an engaged way of being a human being. Because compassion understands that there's no way to be a human being without integrating the truth of suffering. There's no way forward in any way we might imagine forward being without integrating the reality of suffering. There's no way around it. And you know, when you look through human history and when we look at culture, what we really see are human beings avoiding the reality of suffering. 
so much of what religion has been, you know, institutionally at least, is just ways of denying and avoiding and trying to figure out and frame suffering, explain suffering to ourselves. And so much of the injustice and people oppressing other people or just attempts, you know, to control what they think is their experience of suffering, to get on top of it, to avoid it. So in this way, suffering, human suffering arises because we don't know what to do with suffering. And it's the coming together of wisdom and compassion that ends up helping us to relate to suffering in a way that allows for there to be freedom. It's, you know, it's a little provocative to say that, you know, as it is in the tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, I think it's in the Path of Purification, this ancient text by Buddha Gosa, written maybe eight or nine hundred years after the time of the Buddha, um, where he says something like, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. And this is somewhat paradoxical, but it really essential as human beings that we're not dismissive of suffering. And the way we prove to ourselves and others that we're not dismissive of suffering is we practice getting close. But we don't, we don't sort of, uh, in a superficial way, believe what our conditioned mind tells us. Right? We don't believe our stories about suffering. So when we get close to suffering, we leave our stories behind. And this is where wisdom really helps. How can we approach suffering? Now, this is a, our homework this week and weeks ahead. You know, because we're all going to bump into difficult moments, whether it's just feeling lousy in the body or some difficult experience with another human being or whatever it might be. Full-blown existential crisis. But to, when we can remember to bring some humility, this is, this is that wisdom aspect. So as we turn toward it, hopefully, not overwhelmed, so there's some sense of ease, some sense of resilience or safety, enough safety that we're willing to look at the suffering. And then we can remember humility. Sure, I might have ideas about what this experience is, but I want to, I want to rely more on the direct, immediate experience of exposure, of being present. What is it like? What does it feel like? what's it like in the body, then my idea of what's happening, or who's to blame, or what I should do to fix it. And that's what I mean by the humility, so that we can, um, the freedom doesn't come from having a good story that explains why the suffering is here and who's at fault. We want freedom to arise even when it doesn't make sense at all. You know, like some of those natural disasters. 
which just wipe out a bunch of folks and other creatures. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's just causes and conditions. And so when we're exposed, when we're willing to bring to mind or we're right there in the moment and we see it, And what is that? How can there? How can freedom arise with this kind of exposure to uncertainty and insecurity and vulnerability? And it just so happens that our life, the ordinary life of a human being, most of us at least, you know, we hopefully we have <clears throat> the right balance of difficulties and relative stability and wholesome, pleasant circumstances. So enough safety and enough exposure, right? And some of us, some of the human beings on the planet have way too much exposure to suffering and not enough safety and comfort. And other human beings, we may not think of them as unfortunate, but they have way too much comfort and safety and not enough exposure. And these people, the shadow here is thinking that they're out of the woods, that they've learned what they need to have learned. And the fact is that they remain vulnerable to suffering. It's just not manifesting necessarily in that moment. But the ignorance, thinking they're out of the woods, is its own form of suffering, just subtle and not apparent. So wherever you are along that spectrum, too much exposure, too much difficulty in your life, or relatively little, right? So keep that in mind. If you're over here, then you really need to spend more emphasis on whatever kind of safety, whatever kind of wholesome qualities you could direct your attention to around you and in your own mind and heart. Because as I mentioned at the beginning of class, it's really hard to learn about wisdom and compassion when we're feeling overwhelmed. In a sense, that's what wisdom tells us to do when we're overwhelmed, when the exposure is too high. Honey, how can you find, what can you put your attention to that will bring up and reinforce a sense of safety and solidity and resilience and inner goodness. And some of that is just retreating, secluding the mind from the difficulties that are overwhelming, or changing the channel. This is true, this exposure, this difficulty, this thing that hasn't been figured out is true in my life, but right now I'm going to absorb into this other activity. I'm going to knit a scarf. I'm going to clean the toilet, I'm going to talk to a friend, I'm going to walk around the block, and I'm going to fully show up for those activities and take a vacation from looking at the threats and difficulties in my life. And if you tend to be more at this end, or there are moments at least in your life where you're at this end, not that much exposure, then you really want to Heighten your sensitivity to suffering. Little in your own heart and around you. And um, 
using one's imagination about whatever security we're standing on, whatever safety we feel protected by, remembering its insecurity, that things will change, that death will come, and I don't know when, that with any gain there's loss. So that by next Monday, when we show up together online and some of you in your small groups, we will, because of these resolves, we will have learned a thing or two about our own direct immediate experience of compassion and wisdom and how they work together and how they work together in ways that deepen the heart's understanding of what freedom is and what it isn't. Because like I, I mentioned already, we have a lot of wrong understanding about freedom because we've generally associated freedom with having what we want, you know, having those favorable conditions, having the safety, having the respect that we think we need from the people we think we need it from, then I'm free because I'm, in a sense, in a relative sense, I'm free of needing that to happen because I got it. I got the nice car that I thought I needed to have. I have the respect that I thought I needed to have. So I'm free of my desires because my desires have been fulfilled. But we always have more desires and whatever has been gained can be taken away. It's just a matter of time. It will be gone, right? So loss is inevitable. It just comes with human existence. And so maybe I'll just leave us with this, you know, this last reflection, you know, especially to heighten our interest and experience of compassion and kind of the wider view of this world that we live in. I was talking to Patrice Kelsch this afternoon, um, one of our, one of Common Ground's Dharma teachers, long-time teachers and uh leaders, our first board chair, and uh, I called her to ask her about this um, philosophical or moral principle that I heard about, and uh, she mentioned that John Rawls had come up with it, this, what he called the veil of ignorance, as a way of helping us show up as a moral, engaged human being is this reflection that he calls this veil of ignorance. If we didn't know who we were going to be, what gender we would have, whether we'd be uh, in poverty or one of the 1% or of this race or that race, have this body size or that body size, what kind of physical abilities or uh, you know inabilities we'd have with our body, like, can see, can't see, things like that. If we had no clue where we would would be born, what kind of world would we want to be born into? And the reason I think that reflection is a kind of useful way to end is it's very apparent to me 
that this is not that world that I would imagine. Like if I didn't know what my placement was going to be, I'm not sure I'd want to roll the dice with this world and all the many possible births here or there, this sort of situation or that situation. Because there's a lot of difficulty that humans experience and just generally creatures on this planet experience. Life is hard. And so that sense of fairness and justice and its absence, you know, like its very clear absence, we can really let it tenderize our heart. And for me as a very privileged person in so many different ways, I find this very useful to keep this in mind, this tenderizing, when I understand that uh, this life got a really good roll of the dice. And, you know, in the Buddhist kind of cosmological view, there are many rolls of the dice. And so it, it, it really propels my heart, you know, with a lot of confusion, or not, not confusion, but with, with a lot of humility. Like, I don't know what to do with this tenderizing, of course, a lot of the time. But, it, but that tenderizing, I, I sort of equate with the developing compassion and humility. What to do with this human life. And somehow this wholehearted showing up for the mess of our human existence, our collective human existence, seems more and more the way forward than wanting to disappear. Now, retreating and having simplicity and having a, a safe and a comfortable existence, it's very useful for developing this understanding. So it's not like we do anybody any good taking up really difficult circumstances and ourselves becoming one of the people who are overwhelmed and suffering. But nor does it do good just to hide away. Because when we're hiding away from suffering, our own and others, it's its own hell realm. Because we're living a life that depends on not being connected with the way that it is. And you can check for yourselves, you know, when we have that kind of comfort, it's used for healing and refreshment so we can, in our own ways, different for each of us, open up and meet the world that's presenting itself. We don't have to go, you know, the sort of stereotypic trip to the place of the greatest suffering. There's a lot right where we are. So I look forward to continuing with the conversation. I hope, uh, wish everyone success with our four-week class. So really nice to be with everyone tonight. Wishing everybody safety. And may you be well. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.